Now remain standing for our gospel lesson from John 5. Give your ear to the gospel of God. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now. And I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord, help us to understand your word to believe it, and to believe in Jesus, our Lord and our God. Amen. Please be seated. What does it mean... That Jesus is who he says he is, who he said he is. And what would it mean if Jesus were not who he said that he is? Jesus made some startling claims about himself while he was on the earth. And recorded in the gospel, especially in John. He said that he is equal with God. He said that he is God. He claimed to be the Lord. He identified himself as Yahweh, the Lord, the great I am. And if those claims are true, then Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the Lord in the form of a man. He is the God man. If those claims were not true, then we would be forced to conclude that Jesus is a liar and a lunatic. Because if if someone who is not God claims to be God in the way Jesus did, then he is necessarily evil and out of his mind. He's a lying lunatic. So either Jesus is the Lord, as he says he is, and he deserves your allegiance and your worship and your praise, or you must admit that you actually think that he is a lying lunatic. There's no middle ground to come down on. You must make a choice. You can't say that Jesus is neither. That he's somewhere in the middle. You can't say that Jesus is, is just a good prophet or a great teacher or a good moral example. How could a great teacher or a good moral example say that he is God when he's not? How could he, Jesus be a good guy if he... We're lying about who he is. Someone who is not God goes around claiming that he is God. That person forfeits 
the right to be considered a prophet or a good teacher. He has earned the right to be called a phony, a fake, an evildoer, a lying lunatic. Many many want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be able to say that Jesus was a good man, one of the wise prophets, a moral teacher, but they don't want to obey him and bow the knee to him. They don't want to confess him as Lord, but there's no such middle ground. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says, this is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. End quote from C.S. Lewis. John five sixteen to 24 forces us, forces everyone to make a choice about Jesus. Will we believe what he says about himself and call him Lord or Will we reject his claims as outlandish and call him a lying lunatic? Jesus is the heart and soul of the Christian faith. He's the heart and soul of the gospel. At the very center of our religion, at the very center of biblical religion, is not an idea or a philosophy. It's a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. So the most important question we can ask and the most important question that every human must answer in this life is the question about the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus Christ? Who do you say he is? Jesus, John, the author of this gospel, they've been identifying Jesus as the Lord as God throughout the gospel. In chapter 1, Jesus is the eternal Word who has always been with God, who has always been God from eternity past. He's the Lord over creation since everything, John said, was made through Him, by Him. In chapter 2, He's the Lord over the temple. In chapter 3, He's the Lord over the Jewish purification rituals. In chapter 4, he's the Lord over the temple in Samaria as well as the temple in Jerusalem. In chapter 5, he declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath in an indirect way. He doesn't say it that way. He says that elsewhere. But the story reveals that. In the first 15 verses of John 5, we, we read the story of Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. And Jesus does this miracle on the Sabbath on purpose. He didn't have to do it on Saturday. 
He could have waited another day or two. But he does it on the Sabbath to make a point. And part of his point is to show that he is the giver of Sabbath rest. When we looked at verses 1 to 15 two weeks ago, we saw that this passage presents Jesus as the giver of Sabbath rest. John's not telling a story primarily about a man who gets healed at the pool of Bethesda. He's telling us a story to teach us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus is the culmination of everything the Old Testament was about. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament who in the New of the Old Testament who in the New Testament is fulfilling all of the Old Testament shadows and types. And so in verses 1 to 15 we see Jesus doing the sorts of things that God did in the Old Covenant and the sorts of things that God said he would do in the Messianic age in the New Covenant. The, the passage today and really the rest of chapter 5 is tied to those first 15 verses. And in the sermon from two weeks ago on this story, we saw that Jesus is the Lord who gives spiritual life to his people's dry bones, raising them from the valley of dry bones. We saw that Jesus is the Lord who brings his people into the true promised land and we saw that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath who gives true Sabbath rest to his people and it turns out that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus everything about the promised land and Sabbath rest and the resurrection of his people the resurrection of dry bones all of these promises point to the salvation that Jesus accomplishes that he accomplished for us in the new covenant that's why Jesus says in this very chapter Later on in verse 39 of chapter 5. That the Old Testament scriptures point to him. They're all about him. John 5.39. You search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which speak of me. But the Jews. Wanted Jesus dead. Look at verse 16. For this reason. Verses 1 to 15 in particular. The Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Up in verse 10, these same Jews told the man who was made well by Jesus that he was breaking the Sabbath. It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And that's because the Jews had created all these rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And one of them is that you couldn't carry something like this, like your mat or your bed from one location, one domain to another. And that's what he was doing. Now in verse 16, they're wanting to kill Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. It says, for this reason, the Jews persecuted him. Because he had done this on the Sabbath. Now, in response to their overblown fury, rage, anger, Jesus could have launched into a discussion with these Jews about what the Bible actually says regarding the Sabbath. He could have confronted their misguided notions of what the Old Testament says. He could have confronted their man-made additions to the Old Testament. He could have rebuked them for distorting God's teaching on the Sabbath. 
something that was supposed to be a good thing for God's people had become burdensome. He could have defended his healing of this man as well as this man's carrying his bed home on the Sabbath. But Jesus doesn't make the Sabbath the issue. And so we won't make the Sabbath the issue. Instead, Jesus uses it as a launching pad for a Christological discussion, a discussion about who Jesus is, who the Christ is. In the following verses, Jesus gives one of his greatest and most profound, most extensive declarations of his divinity, his deity, his godness. In verses 17 to 24, Jesus provides us a rich and profound answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ? In this passage, Jesus identifies himself with God. He identifies himself as God. He makes himself equal with God, the Father, in being, in works, in knowledge, in love, in power, in authority, in honor, and in love. To believe in Jesus is to believe in God. To reject Jesus is to reject God. You cannot be saved unless you believe that Jesus is God. If you reject that Jesus is God, you are rejecting the great salvation that God offers. Someone says they know God and they deny that Jesus is God. They don't know God after all. The first claim Jesus makes about himself is that he is equal with God the Father in being. In place of the word being, you can use the word nature or essence or substance, as we say in the Nicene Creed. Look at verses 17 and 18. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I've been working. I too have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. When Jesus claimed that God is his father. When, when he uttered the words, my father, the Jews went ballistic. They, they knew what he was saying. They rightly understood him to be making himself equal to God, with God. The Jews referred to God as their father. But here, Jesus wasn't just calling God Father. He wasn't just affirming God is our Father, the way we pray our Father in the Lord's Prayer. No, He was saying much more. He was affirming that God is His Father in a way that God was not anyone else's Father. And He, he would have said much more than what we have in the text. He would have what we what John gives us here is a portion of what Jesus said, the most important the part that John thought was important, the Holy Spirit thought was important for us to know. And so we can imagine in context that Jesus said more and it became extremely clear to these Jews what he was actually claiming. Jesus is claiming to be the only begotten son of the Father, the one and only son, the unique son. He he's claiming to have a unique relationship with the Father. He's claiming to be one with the Father in being. He's saying to his fellow Jews, 
our father is my father in a way he is not your father. And I am the father's son in a way that you are not and no one else is his son. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He's of the same essence, the same being as the father. He's a different person from God, the father. But he's of the same substance of the father, the same nature. Jesus has always been with God. and He's always been God. Both the father and the son are equally God. Neither one is more God than the other. That's why we confess in the Nicene Creed that Jesus is very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father. Jesus Christ is equal with the Father. One with the Father. The second point on your outline is that Jesus is equal with God the Father in works. John develops this point in verses 16 to 20. We already read verse 17 where Jesus says, my father's been working and I too have been working. He identifies himself with the father there. Now look at verses 19 and 20 on this second point. Then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does. The son also does in like manner for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Genesis 2 says that when God had finished creating the heavens and the earth, he rested on day 7. Hebrews 4 indicates that God's rest from creating the world continues through today. But we should not interpret this to mean that God has been inactive ever since the end of day six. God not only created the heavens and the earth, but he has been working to sustain them ever since. In this sense, breaking the Sabbath, quote-unquote breaking the Sabbath, is not only lawful for God, it's necessary for God, if we want to think about it that way. The Jews... That Jesus is talking to. They knew this. They had talked about this for centuries. And tried to work it out. They realized that God's Sabbath rest. Was not a total rest. From all his work. And they had different ways of working it out. So that God was either above the law. Or he actually obeyed the Sabbath law. But the important point here. Is that God never rests. From governing the world. He never rests from upholding the universe. Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking died without discovering the most important thing about our universe. They died without discovering the power component that keeps the universe running. They died before they could identify the mysterious energy source that exists somewhere in the midst of all the atoms and subatomic particles in the universe. The thing that keeps everything moving and that holds everything together. It's God. The living God. God has been working to sustain His creation ever since Genesis 1. 
But what's astounding about verse 17 is the shocking claim at the end of the verse. Jesus says, and I have been working. The words and I are one word in Greek. You could translate it I too. or I also. I too have been working. And this emphatic phrase, this emphatic word, this emphatic pronoun equates the work of Jesus with the work of God. And therefore it equates Jesus with God. The work of God is the work of the Father and the Son. Then Jesus expounds on verse 17 down in verse 19. He says in verse 19, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son does in like manner. And this is so profound that the frustrate I love preaching on a verse like this because it's so profound, but the frustration is not doing it justice. Here Jesus covers all the bases. He says, I can't do anything except what the Father does, and I do everything that the Father does. You see that? If I don't see the Father doing it, I don't do it. And everything I see the Father doing, I do in the same way, in like manner. This rules out two options. It rules out two heresies. On the one hand, it rules out that Jesus is a mere human, only human. If Jesus does everything that God does, and he doesn't do anything that God doesn't do, then he must be fully God and not just a mere human. On the other hand, it rules out that Jesus is another God. It rules out polytheism or bitheism or tritheism with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not a separate God. If Jesus does everything that his father does and he doesn't do anything that his father doesn't do. Then he must be of one divine substance of one being with his father. So verse 19 demonstrates that Jesus is very God, a very God. The works of Christ are the very works of God. But it also demonstrates that Jesus is not a separate God. He's not another God in addition to the Father. The works of Christ are the works of the only God, the one true God. The God who created everything and who sustains everything, even as I speak. John 1.3 already taught us that Jesus was involved in creating the world in Genesis 1. John 1 3 says that all things were made through Jesus, and without him nothing was made that was made. This, infirm, this affirms that Jesus is the creator of the universe. But there's another 1 3. Hebrews 1 3 also affirms that Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. We read that as our epistle lesson. It says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of Of his power. Let's think about that for a minute. That means that everything in the entire cosmos is being upheld at this very moment, right now, by the powerful word of Jesus the Christ. The only reason the universe continues to exist is that Jesus continues to speak it into existence. The only reason you are still alive 
is that Jesus is actively and intimately and personally upholding your existence right now by the word of his power. That's what Hebrews 1, 3 means. Jesus spoke everything into existence in Genesis 1. And in Genesis 2, he stopped creating. He stopped speaking things into existence, but he did not stop working. He did not stop speaking Jesus continues to uphold everything he created with the same word, by the same word that he created everything with. The powerful word that created all things during the first six days of creation is the same powerful word that has been upholding all of creation from the seventh day on. What this means is that there is something more fundamental to creation, in creation, than the forces of nature and the laws of physics. Every atom and every subatomic particle in the universe, in the physical creation, we could say something similar about this invisible part of creation, all the invisible atoms, whatever, however you want to look at that. All of it contains a power component that cannot be seen even with the most powerful instruments. This power component keeps every atom moving and holds every atom together. The true nature of this power component cannot be found at the end of a microscope or at the end of a scientific experiment because this power component is the Word of God, the Word of power that comes from the mouth of of Jesus. The word of Jesus is the word of God, and the works of Jesus are the works of God. If Jesus stopped upholding all things by the word of his power, then everything would disintegrate all at once, immediately. All things in heaven and on earth, all things visible and invisible would cease to exist the moment Jesus stopped speaking them into existence think about that how often do we wake up and jump into our day and make our plans and go about our tasks and our routines as if we have our own source of energy and power and life giving little or no thought to the God who is upholding us As we do these things that we think are so important. What if we woke up and recognized first thing that we have no power or life in ourselves? What if we started every day by committing it to the one who neither slumbers nor sleeps. And who keeps our hearts beating and our lungs working while we sleep. If you truly appreciated how dependent you are on Jesus for every second of your existence. If you fully appreciated what would happen if Jesus stopped holding you together by his powerful word. You'd stop relying on your own strength and your own understanding. You'd stop thinking that everything you do is so important. Self-importance. 
would completely disappear. You'd stop thinking that you are indispensable. That you can't rest. That you can't go to sleep. That you can't not do this thing or that thing. Instead, you'd begin looking to Jesus as the beginner and the finisher of your faith and the beginner and the finisher of every day. You'd commit yourself to the one who sustains you and promises to go with you wherever you go. You'd recognize that there's only one man who is indispensable. And it's not you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who has been working alongside his father from the very beginning. Number three. Jesus is equal with God the Father in knowledge. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. God the Father does not keep any secrets from God the Son. There's nothing that the Father knows that the Son does not know. The Father loves the Son so much that he shows him, the text says, Jesus says, all things. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yes, it's true that the human nature of Christ did not know everything while Jesus was on the earth. God did not show the human mind of Christ all things while Christ was on the earth. But verse 20 is not talking about the human nature, the human mind of Christ. It's referring to his godness, his divine nature. The son of God never gave up his divine attributes. When he took on human nature, finite nature, he never gave up his infinite nature, his infinite attributes. He never ceased to be God while he was on the earth, which means that he has always known everything that the father knows. Colossians 2, 3 says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Father has all wisdom, all knowledge. The Son, Christ, has all wisdom, all knowledge. All the wisdom and knowledge of God are hidden. They, they are contained in Jesus. Colossians 2, 3 says, the father hides nothing from the son. He hides everything in the son from us. It's hidden from us because we're not divine. We cannot fully understand the fullness of God's wisdom and knowledge revealed in Christ, but also hidden in Christ. The father loves the son so much that from eternity past, he has granted to the Son, everything He has and everything He is. Everything He has, everything He is, His being. All that the Father has and is, is, is and is has been given to the Son. A better way to say it is this. The Father has been giving everything He has and is to the Son forever. That's what it means that he's the eternally begotten son. He's been being begotten forever. He's been being the son forever. He didn't come into existence. The father didn't start giving him everything at some point in time. It's the nature of the, their eternal relationship. 
And all of this is based on a mutual love between the Father and the Son. A love that has existed for as long as God has existed. It's the love that Jesus is talking about at the beginning of verse 20. Is an eternal love that has existed between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. And that brings us to our fourth and our final point. Jesus is equal with God the Father in love. And this is my favorite point. The Father has given the Son everything He has and is. He's shown Him all things because He loves His one and only Son with a love that is incomprehensible. But that's not all. That's one side of it. It's also the case that the Son does everything the Father sent Him to do. He obeys the Father's will perfectly because He loves His one and only Father with a love that is just as incomprehensible. It's the same love. The love of the Son toward the Father is equal with the love of the Father toward the Son. And how do we know? How do we know that the Son's love for the Father is a divine love that is as great as the Father's Son Father's love for the Son. Hope that came out right. What did Jesus do to prove that His love for the Father is equal with the Father's love for Him? What did He do? He left His glory in heaven and He came to earth to do His Father's will. One chapter over, John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Philippians 2.8, Paul says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. In the second half of verse 20, here in John 5, Jesus says that the Father will show him greater works. That cause people to marvel. What are these greater works? What's Jesus talking about? What's he pointing us to here? Part of the answer comes in the next two verses. We're going to look at them next time in more depth. Verses 21 and 22. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. These two verses remind us and explain further to us What we've already learned, that the Father's work is done by the Son. That's that's why the Son is the one who actually raises the dead and gives life in verse 21. That's why the Son is the one who actually does the judging in verse 22. The Father's work is done by the Son here in this intra-Trinitarian logic. And so in verse 20, back up to verse 20, the great, greater works that Jesus is talking about are His own works. They're the Father's works, but Jesus is going to do them, so they're His works too. Greater works that the Father will show the Son are the works that the Son is about to do. The works that He came to earth to do. 
And the greatest work of all is the work that the Son will do on the cross in obedience to His Father and for the sake of His people. That's the greatest of those greater works. What Jesus does on Calvary. The celebrated talk show host, Phil Donahue, explained in his autobiography why he left the Christian faith. He wrote, If God the Father is so all-loving, why didn't He come down and go to Calvary? Then Jesus could have said, This is my Father in whom I am well pleased. How could an all-knowing, all-loving God allow His Son to be murdered on a cross in order that He might redeem my sins? What Donahue fails to understand is that the Father shares in this love. He shared in the pain and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. No, he wasn't on the cross with Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But remember what verse 19 says. The Son doesn't do anything on His own. He does what He sees the Father doing. And everything the Father is doing, He does. That applies to everything Jesus did. This means that the love and the pain and the sacrifice of the Son at Calvary is in some way an accurate, a perfect picture of the love and the pain and the sacrifice of the Father. In sending His Son to earth to die, the Father was not asking the Son to suffer more than the Father. Or in a completely different way. It was in like manner, Jesus says. Verse 19 assures us that when the Son was suffering on the cross, He was suffering in the same manner as as His Father does. In the same manner as He saw His Father suffering. He was doing what He saw His Father do. He was living out the true nature of God. Jesus didn't just go to the cross even though He's God. He went to the cross because He is God. And this is what God does for His people. In other words, when Jesus went to the cross, He was simply imitating the sacrificial love of His Father. And you are the beneficiary of this eternal bond of love. This this love is welling up and spilling out, running over. And you and I are the beneficiaries. You have been caught up in a divine love relationship between the Father and the Son. One of the reasons the Father sent the Son to die and didn't do it Himself is that He wanted His Son to receive the glory of and the honor, and the worship, and the praise that resulted from His dying on the cross. He he wanted His Son to have a bride, which is us, which is you and me. The story of Scripture is the story of a father getting a bride 
for his son. Every believer is a love gift from the father to the son. You are a love gift from the father to the son. And Jesus says that he doesn't lose any that the father has given to him. The father has given you to his eternal son. Your salvation is God's gift of love to his only begotten son. Your salvation is the son's gift of love to his father. Let's pray and give thanks for this. We do thank you, Father, for loving your son and for loving us in your son. We thank you, Jesus, for loving your father and loving us to the point of death on a cross. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for drawing us and connecting us to God, to Jesus. Oh, Lord, help us to love you and to love one another with a love that comes from you, a love that comes from God. In Jesus' name, amen.